Hello and welcome to the American Circus Program, a podcast aimed at what is unique about American personalities. Our goal in the show is to expose personalities, issues, and truths and have you judge them as heroes, as rebels, or as saints. That's the Three Ring American Circus, and I'm Arnie Pickholtz. We all know a blues song when we hear it, sometimes a wail of hurt or regret, sometimes a thankful sense of release, sometimes the ball of lingering disappointment and despair, kind of like swimming in the songs on the edge of sorrow. Today we'll look inside a blues personality, Kathy Lemons. She's a lady inside the blues. She was born in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and she knows the feeling of a move and the fears of a new environment, a new school, new friends. She would move 15 times before the age of 13 and finally settled in Dallas, Texas. As a Texan, she notes the harsh extremes, the environment, the temperatures, and the people. They just tell it like it is. Before we bring her on, let's take a look at the blues. We'll start with Robert Johnson. He was a Delta blues man who only recorded twice, both times in Texas. performer, he played mostly on street corners, in juke joints, and at Saturday night dances. Johnson had little commercial success or public recognition in his lifetime. He participated in only two recording sessions, one in San Antonio in 1936 and one in Dallas in 1937, that produced 29 distinct songs with 13 surviving alternate takes, recorded by famed Country Music Hall of Fame producer Don Law. These songs recorded at low fidelity in improvised studios with a groundwork for the blues and for rock and roll. Although Delta Blues certainly existed in some form or another at the turn of the century, it was first recorded in the late 1920s when record companies realized the potential African-American market for race records. In big city blues, women singers such as Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, and Mamie Smith dominated the recordings of the 1920s. Bonnie Raitt, Rory Block, and Susan Tedeschi are contemporary women blues artists who were influenced by Delta Blues and learned from some of the most notable of the original artists still living. Delta Blues was also an inspiration for the creation of British skiffle music, from which eventually came the British Invasion Bands, the Beatles, the Stones, and many others. Change yet, but it looks like you're here to 
Kathy, who would you say were your influences? Well, mostly men, I hate to say. <laughs> um, my first influence was Junior Wells. I just loved his, his edgy humor in his voice and the way that he kind of delivered with a punch, but there was always a little humor in there. I just love Junior Wells and Buddy Guy. Uh, I first early influenced is Coco Taylor. Um, I, I listened a lot to her as a young woman and Aretha Franklin was a huge influence as a young woman. Later, I would say people like Ruby Johnson, who's more of a soul singer, but definitely blues influenced. And she was on Stax Volt, so that's a Memphis thing. And uh, Ruby Johnson was a great influence. Um, Mabel John, I love Mabel John. I also really appreciate Susan Tedeschi. I think she's a really great blues singer. And um, I think Bonnie Raitt, uh, you know, is, is a great artist, but she's really kind of more pop blues. But, you know, like if you listen to Susan Tedeschi saying um, the Elmore James song, Sky is Crying, that's real blues. And um, so I'm a fan. I'm a fan of a contemporary for sure. Gertrude Ma Rainey was an American blues singer and influential early blues recording artist. Dubbed the mother of the blues, she bridged earlier vaudeville and the authentic expression of southern blues, influencing a generation of blues singers. Her first recording was made in 1923. In the following five years, she made over 100 recordings, including Bow Weevil Blues, Moonshine Blues, C.C. Ryder Blues, and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Rainey was known for her powerful vocal abilities, energetic disposition, majestic phrasing, and a moaning style of singing. In 1910, she was described as Mrs. Gertrude Rainey, our coon shouter. You found the blues early in life, Kathy. You wrote, when I first started singing the blues, male musicians said I could never do it. They said I didn't have the voice or the feel for it, and I should stick to folk or swing music, which is what I had been singing. Somehow I knew that blues was for me, and I didn't listen to them. Blues hit me in my gut. I was drawn to the words and that sexy figure eight sound and the drums that reminds me of a woman's walk. Hell, blues is made for a woman. When I started out, I went out and bought every record I could find of the greats, and I learned those songs. And then 
I went around and sat in and started getting jobs with bands. I will never forget this one bass player, Daryl Strelly, back in Dallas, who said I couldn't sing the blues. Later, he sat in when I stole the show all night long. When it was over, Daryl came up to me and said he was dead wrong, and he apologized, said I sounded great. I shocked him, and it made me feel so good, like I had come full circle. The blues life, Kathy, can be brutal, especially while you're growing and developing your instrument and style. What was it like for you at this time? You know, it's tough being a woman in blues at, in the late 80s, mid to eight ladies when I was developing. I was only uh, 24 when that incident happened. And I really only started singing professionally with a band at the age of 23. But in a year's time, I had pretty much figured it out as a singer of what to do and what not to do. And, um, it, you know, basically, it was all men. There were a few singers. It was interesting to me that back then there were no women that played instruments that I can remember in Dallas, Texas, or Austin. I only remember Luann Barton. I remember Angela Straley, who came through occasionally from Austin, and the rest were all men. So if you went to see a band, it was all men, and all the players were men. And, and nowadays, there's going to be a woman bass player and a woman drummer, and there could be a woman sax, and there could be a woman singer, or there could be a woman keyboard. But back then, there was none of that. So it was all either you were a female singer or you were a guy. And so I was surrounded uh, by men all the time. And as a young woman, I was really, really pretty. Now, did I know that? Probably not. But um, I think it created problems for me because everybody was always sort of dismissing me because of my looks. And they thought, oh, it's just another groupie girl. So it's really difficult for somebody to take you seriously as a young woman, and I'm sure it still is, uh, basically. But um, in Texas, it was much harder for me. When I came to uh, San Francisco in 1987, it was like a completely different open environment. Everybody just completely embraced me with open arms. So I don't know why it was so hard for me in Texas. Delta Blues, written by Hart Wand, is an early Texas blues song, first published in 1912. It's been called the first true blues tune ever published. Texas blues began to appear in the early 1900s among African Americans who worked in the oil fields, in ranches, and lumber camps. In the 1920s, 
Blind Lemon Jefferson innovated the style by using jazz-like improvisation and single-string accompaniment on his guitar. Jefferson's influence defined the field and inspired later performers. During the Great Depression in the 1930s, many bluesmen moved to the cities including Galveston, San Antonio, Houston, and Dallas. It was from these urban centers that a new wave of popular performers appeared, including sly guitarist and gospel singer Blind Willie Johnson. Future bluesmen such as Lightning Hopkins, Little Son Jackson, and T-Bone Walker were influenced by these developments. In the late 1960s and early 70s, the Texas blues scene began to flourish, influenced by country music and blues rock, particularly in the clubs of Austin. The diverse style often featured instruments such as keyboards and horns, with emphasis on guitar soloing. The most prominent artists to emerge in this area were the brothers Johnny and Edgar Winter, who combined traditional and southern styles. In the 1970s, Jimmy Vaughn formed the fabulous Thunderbirds, and in the 1980s, his brother Stevie Ray Vaughn broke through to mainstream success with his virtuoso guitar playing, as did ZZ Top with their brand of Southern rock. Kathy, your bio reads, winners of five independent blues awards in 2021, including Artist of the Year, Song of the Year, Godless Land, the Lucky Losers are San Francisco's finest male-female duet-fronted band, a throwback to the hybrid of soul, blues, rock, gospel, and country that emerged in the late 1960s with impassioned vocal performances, electrifying musical interplay, and powerful harmonica. Described as the finest light-skinned females blues vocalist in the U.S. in Real Blues magazine in 2010, the fiery Dallas entertainer, Kathy Lemons, has a velvet voice with a gritty edge and the rebel conviction of a woman risen from the ashes. Kathy, tell us about band life. How did this band evolve over the years? I had been with a kind of semi-famous bass player. His name is Johnny Ace and uh, for 18 years. And I had, bro, I, we, we weren't married, but we had our little breakup. Uh, I decided I wanted to go out on my own in 2012. And I uh, got together with a, a young man named Stevie Gurr. He used to play with Elvin Bishop for years and also Dr. John. And Stevie was a great match for me. So we had a, a band for a while. I'd say about three years and we made a record block crow. But after... A few years, Stevie decided he wanted to be a, a new parent and his wife had a child. So he was going to raise that kid and quit music, which he did. He quit music. So um, I was sort of on the lookout for a new thing. And um, Phil Berkowitz walked into the saloon after a gig with uh, my friend Dave Workman, who plays the guitar. And uh Phil walks up to me and he, and he basically wanted to hire me for a show. And I turned him down because I didn't really know much about him. And uh, I thought he was a really a, a jump blues guy. And I'm not really a jump blues singer. And so I told him that. And then I told my friend Dave Workman what had just happened. And Dave was like, what are you doing? Go back, go back over there and talk to him right now. You know, you like him. He he likes everything. He's not jump blues. He's he's everything like you. So I I went over and uh, we did our first show together, 
And um, after that, uh, we hit it off as people. And then we sort of started dating. So then we started singing together and we realized we, we could sing together. And we thought it would be really interesting if we could uh, combine our songwriting talents, our singing, and also our love of all this combination of retro music, which is really what you just described. It's like retro blues, retro soul, a little Americana, you know, but old, it's retro. And so that was our thing. And so we just started putting our band together and uh, we're doing, we're gonna be doing our 17th tour on the road and moving from one situation to the next of which you know absolutely nothing about what you're walking into for at least 60% of the time. So it's a big challenge to be out there. But, um, you know, my advice to other musicians or aspiring singers, uh, you have to do it. Otherwise, nobody will ever take you seriously. So, um, and I, I've grown to really love road work now. I actually I can hardly wait to get out here. Because once you're on the road, suddenly that's all you get to have to worry about is music. So, okay, so I have a show today. Okay, what time do I get ready? What time do I have to arrive? In life, life is much more complicated. So um, it's less stressful in some ways to do that. It's strange. Kathy, you live the blues. We talked about your wandering mother, but over time, you developed addictions and associations that would have tested the toughest of us. Can you describe your blues life in context of these dangerous times? You know, my mother was mentally ill. There is no question about that, but she remained undiagnosed her whole life. It, it was so interesting to see how she skated by every possible cornering of her, but she did. So she moved us all around everywhere. We lived in Entebbe, Uganda. We lived in Kingston, Jamaica. She had a lot of different partners. We lived in Kingston, New York. We lived all over. Um, so that didn't create, let's call it a shelf to rest your personality on. I didn't have the same friends. I didn't have uncles, aunts. Uh, we didn't have a television most of the time. We were very poor. I had my two sisters and my mother and my poor father was always looking for us, trying to reconnect until my mother moved again. So I, I really didn't have an upbringing conducive to mental health. So uh, I ended up feeling very angry as a young person. I remember one time, you know, I used to do a lot of drugs. So I would do, go to the cocaine parties in Dallas. And I remember one night, um, my friends, I had some pretty funny, interesting male friends and that were musicians mostly. And um, 
I remember kicking a hole in this guy's wall. I just, I was pissed off. I had done some coke. I took my high heel shoe and I, I riddled his wall with holes. And my friends were just like, what are you doing? You just ripped this cop's wall. But that's how pissed off I was as a young woman. I was really pissed off, you know? And um, so I got into drugs, mostly probably because of being pissed off. And, um, you know, what I saw, I always felt like a stranger in a strange land growing up. I was always on the outside looking in. But, you know, this addiction raged for a long, long time, and it took me all the way down. And, uh, you know, I was a little bank robber. I was a little uh, thief. I was a department store thief who stole 50 shirts out of Macy's, I, you know, and was chased down the street. Uh, you know, I, I've been in many jails in my lifetime. I, you know, I've done a lot of things. Uh, at the time, it seemed like the best decision I had to keep off the street. I did whatever it took to stay off the street. If I had to rob somebody, by God, I would do it. I was definitely all the way down to the ground. And, um, you know, wasn't great for my musical career either. I got fired from bands. People, I, I was supposed to sing at the San Francisco Blues Festival in 1987. Paris Slim, Frank Goldwasser hired me to sing this, the biggest festival in the world for blues. He fired me because he heard that I was doing drugs. So he fired me. And, you know, it's just like I screwed up. But I think um, looking back, you know, we progress at the rate we can. You had a professional relationship with John Lee Hooker. Describe what that was like. And what came out of it? I actually ended up living in John Lee Hooker's house for a few months because I had no. So he took me in. Um, John hired me. I was bamboozled, okay? And I was still pretty naive. I was about, I would say, 28 years old at this time. And I had cleaned up enough to appear sane, okay? And I sat in with John Lee Hooker at uh, a club in San Jose. And uh, he really liked my singing. So he told Deacon Jones, his friend and keyboard player, to go after me and get me and get me on a tour. So I was brought into the John Lee Hooker fold through Deacon Jones. Deacon Jones was a drug addict. He was a heroin addict. Deacon Jones used to say to me, Kathy, I'll take care of the drugs. All you have to do is sing. <laughs> and I was so young, I had no idea what I was getting into. I had no idea. I mean, I did, but I didn't. Let's put it that way. So I was in that entourage off and on for, I would say, about... It was very short. I would, I want to say I did a tour to Canada. I did a tour to Arizona with John Lee Hooker. Uh, I had a lot of, you know, the the Canadian tour was the package tour. It was absolutely fantastic. I had Pine Top Perkins, Elvin Bishop, Stevie Kerr was on that. Um, 
all these great musicians. The rhythm section from the Nighthawks was on that. John Hammond Jr. was on that. So that was a great, great way to learn and listen. I got to hear Hooker sing every night. To me, he is just the greatest blues singer of all time. And I learned a great deal from him. And uh, so he did try to teach me things. And I would watch John Lee. He had this funny way of ending a song with his fist, pulling it down in front of him. And I actually picked up that habit. I didn't even realize I had picked that habit up until my mother told me years later, oh, you look just like John Walker, <laughs> the way you end your song. But I actually lived at his home. I lived with his home with his merch girl, Kathy. So there were two Kathys in his house. I don't know how many people can say they lived with John Lee Hooker. Um, he was very nice to me. They were always trying to hustle me, um, you know, and after a while, even as a stone cold addicted addict, I did not want to mix my musical integrity with somebody hustling me. So it was going to either be all music based on my talent or all hustle. And I decided all music and I basically just told Deacon Jones, I'm not doing any more tours with John because everybody was always trying to hustle me and I just got tired of it. So that was the scene, that's what they do. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of sad because I remember uh, we were having breakfast and Robin Trower came up, who I can't stand. But uh, basically, I heard him talking to John Lee Hooker. And I was sitting with John Hammond Jr. at a breakfast table in Toronto, Canada, this fancy, fancy hotel. And I heard John Lee, he got up and walked over to Robin Trower. And I heard what he said, and it really pissed me off. He, he pointed to me, he says, oh, yeah, I got one, too. I got me a girl. She's over there, you know, and I was just like, I turned bright red. John Hammond Jr. looked so embarrassed. I was embarrassed. And I thought to myself, I got to get out of this. This is not going to work for me, uh, you know, uh, because it's a thing. If you talk to any of the older black guys that came up in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, it's a thing. You know, they go after women and it's a notch on their little belt. And they are very, even if they're the nicest person in the world, like Hooker was, such a gentle, sweet soul. They're still in that game. They got to hustle that woman. It gets old after a while. So I, I moved on. But it was great experience to watch a great blues icon every night sing and watch him handle a band. And all John did was he would close his eyes and go in here. And that's where he stayed. And he, he could just kill you with that heart of his. TV light on, lots of stale cigarettes, cause it ain't enough, no, 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 it ain't enough, that's right, that's right, oh yeah, uh-huh, oh, no matter how high, 
I read part of the story about your English teacher who told you never to qualify your work. This teacher told you that you were supposed to let the work speak for itself. And if people were offended, if they were shook up, shocked, well then, that's okay. The writing has punch. What was the impetus or force of your writing? Well, I just see a picture and then I paint it with words. I see a picture. I wrote this new song called Rust Belt Blues because I'm not one who likes to see our country divided the way it is. So I thought, okay, well, maybe they have a point of view that I don't understand. So then I started seeing pictures and then I wrote the song based on the pictures I saw. So we went up on a tour to the Rust Belt and I was pretty surprised to see some devastated old reddish rusty buildings just out there in the sun, nobody working in the factories anymore. So I wrote a song called Rust Belt Blues and I just kind of saw it in my head and I, I got the Rust Belt Blues, keep your hat, keep your hat on now. Seen my riches turn to rags. It's like a win in like a song. And I don't mind a little line if I can keep my dignity. But keep up all that talking. I got the Rust Belt Blues. Oh, oh, oh yeah. I got the Rust Belt Blues. So, you know, you just, I'm trying to plug in to what's happening right now. I'm trying to tell their side, you know, Things happen to people that are tragic. Uh, there's, there's not an accident in why people pick different leaders. They think they're going to help them. Sometimes it's tragic because they don't help them. But um, I try to plug into what's happening now and I try to read a lot. I read all the time and uh, pick up stories and I have these images in my head and, and that's kind of, I try to plug into now uh, I wrote another song called They Wrecked My Town. And um, that's about how I feel about San Francisco right now. Uh, the tech industry moved in and we've got two clubs left for blues that's worth playing in two. There used to be 20. Now we got two, you know, so, but that's, you know, the song is about all we want is a nice place to live, a quiet place where they can't rob us you know, that kind of thing. And that's how most people feel. That's what most people want. They want to have a nice life, undisturbed, unprovoked, without violence or rage intruding upon their peaceful space. And so, you know, I'm picking up on this stuff. It's kind of like songwriters have antennas and you're picking up on what's going on out there. And um, hopefully it will resonate. Um, a lot of people are on the move right now. They're changing jobs. They're changing residences. They're traveling in vans. So I wrote this song called Pack Up the Bags, and it's about getting out there into the unknown. So, But it's, it's a trend I'm seeing in, in our country, in the United States, of people moving. And um, so I think we're going to call the album Searching for a City. And uh, Phil has written some really great, interesting songs as well, Phil Berkowitz. So I think we'll combine these things into a, a story. And most of albums should be stories, otherwise just do a single. 
But these are like little nuggets of short stories that you kind of pull in for a narrative and a perspective. Kathy, in your hours of desperation, or maybe they weren't, you sold your body for more than a song. I'm sure that conjures up some lyrics that speak to what that environment was like and how you saw yourself as a player. Anything specific comes to mind? Well, yes, I, I was definitely a, a hooker for a while, for about three and a half years. And... Um, that is a very, people have these ideas of what that means. But we, the women, called ourselves working girls. And we had boundaries on specific things that we would and would not do. And we made a lot of money. When you are a heroin addict, you have to have a lot of money. At some point, you have to decide, do I want to become a violent person and hurt people physically, or do I want to do it in a different way? A lot of women choose prostitution because it's basically nonviolent. But unfortunately, a lot of women that go into working, you know, especially at that time, I worked streets, which means we had a stroll, which means we would walk out onto the avenue and our little pink shirts and pink pumps and our black skirts, I, you know, me and my girlfriends out there, uh, you know, and we would see a familiar guy and we would get in the car and they would circle around like hawks. And that was, you know, kind of how I met my boss, Norma Hotelling. She was out there on the street. Here she was. And I was like, what is she doing out there? What is she doing? Well, I finally figured it out. But there's a, a common misunderstanding about what is actually going on. And, um, you know, it's for money. It's for money. And it's nonviolent. And unfortunately, women often are attacked and abused in that profession. And it should stop. And that's why I got into Sage Project as a... Uh, a person that wanted to give back once I pulled myself out of that mess because women are terribly abused in that profession. And uh, Norma, my boss, was just the best activist in the world as far as I was concerned about how to voice these women are people's sisters, they're people's mothers, they have children, they should never be attacked, police should be respectful of them, police should be trained in how to handle them. They shouldn't be jailed, you know, and, uh, but she, she was such an interesting person. She also did not believe it was healthy. And I don't believe it's healthy. I don't. I think that it was such a terrible, sad, fragmented thing that I did to my poor, poor self as an addict. But I also know that people make these decisions under duress. And I was definitely under duress. I needed to make money. 
So, um, you know, but uh, I, I've survived many, very brutal attacks and uh, I have processed those brutal attacks. I was actually attacked with a cat prod by some crazy ass trick. And I got out of the car by tricking him and telling him something that he wanted to hear, which I finally figured out. But, um, you know, women in that industry is just horrific what they go through. And there's just this judgment on, on women over sex that still is pervasive in our society. And it is so laughable to me that people fail to see the complexity in life and human beings. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing that I got out of it. But uh, actually, if you wanna know the truth, Arnie, I got out of it inch by inch by inch not leap, not bound, nothing jumping forward. It was literally a crawl through that. And, um, you know, I, I did a lot of inner work, tremendous amount of therapy, uh, EMDR, that's uh, trauma therapy. Uh, so that when I talk about attacks, I don't have uh, a yuck feeling. Uh, I don't shake. It's like, okay, it's been processed up here now. It's in the frontal lobe where it belongs. But um, basically it, it was a very, very difficult thing. The good news is I can apply it all to blues. I can apply all of my experiences to blues in a way that very few people could ever imagine applying it. And I have been down exactly in the ground where people have stepped on my head. So I can certainly speak with authority. And there you have it, the life of a blues woman. Our special thanks to Kathy Lemons for her talent and her candor. Okay, now it's your turn, audience, to offer a show of hands. What do you think? Is Kathy Lemons a hero, a rebel, or a saint? Send your vote and comments to armpick at comcast.net. That's armpick at comcast.net will tally and let you know the results. Thank you, Kathy Lemons. We broadcast on Spotify and YouTube under the American Circus banner. If you're a YouTube viewer, it's the Savvy Channel. And that's the way we look at the American personality. For the Savvy Channel, this is Arnie Pickholz, and we'll see you next time. It's much too late.